Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we're reading Matthew 4, 1-17, the story of the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness. We wrestle with the very concept of the devil, which often strikes modern people as an antiquated idea. But once we recognize the ways that Jesus is tempted, we begin to recognize the work of the devil all around us in the economic, political, and prestige systems that tempt us to turn our own lives away from the kingdom of heaven and toward the ways of the empire. Jesus is first tempted by his own physical needs for bread and water, then by his need to demonstrate to others that he is worthy of love, and finally by the possibility of conforming the whole world to his will. Temptations that, in one way or another, come to us all. The devil may tempt you to skip this podcast, but don't do it. This is urgent stuff. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's good to see you today. It is good to see you too. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Getting back into the swing, getting ready to get in the swing of the spring semester. Amy, normally I teach three classes a semester, but this coming mm-hmm. semester I'm teaching four. Uh, I was hoping you were going to say two yeah. or zero. Which means Not that, that you don't want to teach. I know you want to teach. I love to teach, but there's a, there's I like know, a limit to the number of things one can keep in one's head, as you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't know. I, I don't know. I know. But this, so I'm, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday this coming semester, I'm going to be teaching at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 12 o'clock. Three classes in four hours. Wow. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> wow. I'm going to be pretty delirious lot. by the end. That's a by lot. The end. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's how I am. Good problems to have in general. Like, you know, I get to do what I love more than I might like to do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'll learn things about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. What about you? Um, last night, I saw Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. Not last night, two nights ago. Wow. The whole thing was in Yiddish. That's amazing. I know. So when you're thinking about having to be like on for three classes in a row, at least it's in your native language because this was definitely not the native language of the people in the show. That is amazing. It was super cool. There were were super titles. So like you could read in English and in Russian. So you could read along. But honestly, I know that musical so well. I I don't know. You knew what was going on. (laughs) I know every scene. I know what's happening. I have like a lot of the dialogue memorized. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Everything else is a little bit of a dumpster fire, but we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Other than to say, I'm recording this from my sister's house where there is a sick three-year-old and a recently created hole in the roof. And they are trying to keep the house quiet for long enough for us to record this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bible so, one does occasionally inconvenience some other people. We are grateful to them. So if you if you hear sounds, we're doing the best we can. You yeah. know, reality may pop through here and there, but who needs reality? Hopefully not. Yeah, we're, need people, reality. With, we're people with lives. It, uh, it happens. It happens. Yeah. 
So Amy, as you know, we're moving on this week to Matthew chapter four, which is the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in mm-hmm. four, one to 17. This is just picking up at the next verse from where we were last week um, with the baptism of Jesus um, in Matthew chapter three. So there's really no catching up to do, I suppose, but I'll just ask you, since we often do, is there anything we should say in there, in that space between these stories, in the breath between what happened last time and what's going to happen this time to get us ready? I mean, I think the only thing I just want to remind people of, at least where we left off our conversation, that, you know, there was this really amazing moment of transformation for Jesus himself being baptized and, you know, we talked about how it was some sort of change in his orientation yeah. towards the world or, you know, sort of mark a change. And, and he was welcomed into this, this new period in his life with this real sense of, like, belovedness and, yeah. you know, being uh, a delight to God. This is my son whom I dearly love. Yeah. I find happiness in him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was so, like, heavens opened up, like, this really— like you get a feeling that like Jesus is sort of coming into his fullness and his strength and this, you know, new chapter in his life. And I think you said last time he's about 30. That's that's generally what ish. people think. Yeah. yeah about right. 30. So he's a, he's yes, he's a grown man. And um yeah. So I come into this with this like big open hearted sense of possibility and gravitas and mm, magnitude and yeah. love and yeah, and then it it quickly and here comes the it devil. Quickly goes south. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it fast, does. so fast, mm-hmm. so fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is uh, probably stepping outside the podcast just a wee bit, but you know, on the Patreon every week, I record a video, about twenty five minutes video, so people can show it to a Sunday school class or whatever, and I have some discussion questions, and you know, people can watch the video and do that. So normally, what I do is we record the podcast, and then I edit it, and then I make the video. It's sort of the last thing I do. But this week, because of just the way schedules lined up, I recorded the video before I had talked to you about this text. And it was the weirdest thing because I'm like, I don't know what I think about this text because I, yeah. <laughs> I haven't talked to Amy about it yet. How can I possibly? I mean, and so it's, I, I mean, just listening to you make that like, oh, don't forget where we were. And I'm like, oh, yes, we were there, weren't we? So I, I'm just, all of that is just appreciation to say. I love reading these texts with you and I appreciate how you open the text up for me in ways that are not always just readily available to my own, to my own mind. Well, well, right back at you. It is a beautiful thing to read in, in partnership. It's hard. Absolutely. Hard to do this on your own. All right, Amy. So I'm just going to pick up in chapter four, verse one, and we've got three temptations. So I'm just going to do one temptation at a time. (laughs) We're not going to, we're not going to have two temptations at once because we might get overwhelmed. So I'm picking up in Matthew 4, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. Mm. So Amy, I just want to start out. Where do I want to start out? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> where do you want to start out? Here's where I want to start out. This text has a devil in it, and the devil is tempting him. And 
I feel like modern people, myself included, oftentimes maybe have trouble with this whole concept of the devil. And so one could imagine, I suppose, just like hearing that first verse and being like, yep, this text is like saying stuff I don't I can't relate to because I don't I don't really believe that the devil's running around tempting me. Do you have any way of thinking about or I mean you might well be one of those people. I don't I don't quite know how to how to imagine what's in your head, but when you read this devil showed up to tempt him, like is there a way that you frame that or think about that or just accept accept the text and let it be itself? What what's your take? Oh gosh. You know, one thing I noticed this is totally just a like a an English language translation thing, but it stood out to me. I read from the NRSV and the devil is not capitalized. Yeah. I, I I guess I sort of I could I could go about it two different ways. One is just accept what the text is telling you. This is the worldview of the text and there's a devil. Yeah. <laughs> or I can this is probably a little like postmodern, I don't know. Try to think of that, try to think of the devil more as like the force, the force or forces in the world that lead you away from, you know, we talked last time about there sort of being this, being called towards a particular path of of godliness in the world and that it's really difficult and there are many things in the world that will pull you in the other direction. And I feel like, I think of the devil as like the embodiment of those things. But this text seems to be thinking of it as like a dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, right? I love that transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Where I, you know, the way that you were headed there at the end, the postmodern way, I think is also how I tend to make sense of texts like this. Because you know, when you think about the devil as a dude, you tend to think about you know he's got like little pointy horns and a tail and hooves and he sits on your (laughs) shoulder and tries to make you eat an extra piece of pie after supper or whatever, you know, (laughs) like that guy. And like that to me is, I just have trouble with that, um, taking that seriously. But when you start to talk about there are forces in the world that seem to have their own kind of uh, personality might not be exactly right, but they have their like they have their sort of agency. Like they are actively tempting us to do things that are contrary to the way that we might like to actually live our lives and the per- people we might actually like to be. Like yeah. w- when you say it that way, suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, no, I like I get that. Yeah, I totally relate to that. Yeah. And the devil, the devil, you know, like is a way of talking about that, and the text engages it that way, but. You know, if if you need to move past like little dude with horns to like force in the world, mm-hmm. trying to distract me from what I actually care about to other things that are less good for me or less good for the world, totally there for that. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about it's probably dangerous for me to talk about because I am, but I know I know just enough to be dangerous. But I know that in some like therapeutic models, like psychological therapeutic models. Yeah. People are encouraged to think about unkind voices, voices in their head, not necessarily meaning like a, uh, gosh, I'm just fumbling for words here. The sort of mean things that we say to ourselves yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to kind of externalize that. And sometimes even to give it a name, like, all right, oh, Nancy, yeah. like, 
<laughs> I yeah. see you. I know you're here. Yeah. Chill out so that it doesn't, you know, become totally intertwined with your own identity that it's yeah. just this uh, sort of mean alter ego that's in there. So it's yeah. interesting. I don't know. Inter- I, I, I don't know what exactly the ancient world is thinking, but it, but as I read this text and hear you talk, it's interesting to think about an externalization of those yeah. thoughts that we have ourselves. Yeah. I think that's I think that's super helpful, and I'll, I think we I'll be interested to keep coming back to this question as we go. I do think this is related to the passage that we read just before, and this issue that you raised about Rome, the kingdom of Rome, mm-hmm. and the kingdom of heaven. And you know, one way of reading it is the devil represents our inner dialogue, inner monologue that can sometimes be really mean to us. Another way of reading it is it represents the sort of external uh, forces that try, you know, like try to persuade us to give our loyalty to something other than God. And like, that's so, ah, so diffuse. But if you name it in the same way, like if you give a name to the external voices as well, then maybe that helps you think about them. Like, get out of here, Satan, which, you know, um, is actually going to get said here in a little bit. Yeah. I like that. Now, Amy, one of the things that, you know, so, okay, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. Like, I can make sense of that. The very beginning of this verse, though, is the spirit yeah. led Let's Jesus start, yeah. so that the devil might tempt mm-hmm. him. Like this thing mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. intentional, mm-hmm. and it's not exactly that the devil sneaks up on Jesus at a moment no. of weakness. No. I mean, he does, but the spirit led Jesus ju- exactly so that could happen. Right. Right after this, like, heart opening, cup filling. Yes you know, gorgeous, amazing opening up and strengthening of, of Jesus into this, you know, new period of his life. The first (laughs) sentence, then now that we've done that part, let's lead you into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Like what kind of, that is a complicated love right there. It is. And you almost get the sense, like the spirit had just, like the heavens opened up and the spirit came down and alighted on Jesus. And you almost get these senses, like one continuous movement, right? It's like the spirit comes down and it's like, ah, you're great. And then like, whoop, here we go. Yeah. And so that two are almost just totally, the first thing the spirit does when the spirit comes on Jesus is lead him out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do anything with that right <laughs> now? Or, <laughs> or just want to mean- notice it? And then, I mean, I've got things to say, but I'm not sure they make sense exactly right now. I want to, well, I mean, I want to hear what you, I want to hear what you have to say. I don't know if you want to hold on to it until later. I was just trying to imagine like the kinds of love that I've experienced in the world that can hold all of that, like that, that makes that make sense. Oh, I I like that way of thinking. You know, like, is that like a, a parenting love? Is that like parenting tough love (laughs) is that like I I don't know but I feel like I need some it's hard for me to it's very jarring for me to go from the end of chapter three to the beginning of chapter yeah no I agree with you I make a the connection that I make is also back to that end of chapter three but slightly earlier yeah where Jesus in verse 15 of chapter three said Allow me to be baptized. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And we talked mm-hmm. about that fulfilling all righteousness and the idea of demonstrating how one lives the kingdom of heaven, even when you're in the midst of the kingdom of Rome. Mm-hmm. And 
one way that I can make sense about this is if you're going to fulfill all righteousness, you've got to face the temptations that Rome is going to face people with. And so it, it would be a little disingenuous for Jesus to say, hey, like I, I fulfilled all righteousness, but he's never had to face the temptations that Rome has or Satan has to throw at people. And so yeah. like to me, this could be read that way in order to really show us you've got to go down through it. Like that's one of the things that people always used to say, like at Mercy Church and Canvas Community, where I'm now, where I am now. They're like, if you've been through it, you can talk to people in a way that's different. And they're talking about me, right? Like than people like you, Williamson, who have not been down through it. Like you're great, but you know, uh, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so Jesus here, in order to fulfill righteousness, has to go through it. And this is and this is the thing. That's kind of how I make sense of it. If you read it that way, then the love that the love statement, you are my beloved at the end of chapter three is like, you're getting ready to go through some stuff. I love you. And Mm -hmm. so like that you carry that love or Jesus can carry that love and belovedness into the temptation and carry it, you know, maybe it carries him through or it strengthens him through or something like that. Yeah. It's still a little jarring that the Holy Spirit, it's not just like, the devil's going to come at you, man, and I love you. It's like, I'm going to lead you there. Like, that still does kind of throw me off. But Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, as we were talking about last week, it, it, there's this big moment of transition in the baptism, and Jesus has sort of, like, come into this new chapter and is ready to accept this mantle of new uh, responsibility, yeah. this new significant job portfolio. And it's sort of like the moment that he does, like, you can't, he can't just wait for things to happen naturally. Like, eventually, through a natural life, maybe everyone yeah. would be tempted at some point. But it's like, there is work to be done. And so, like, your education in the, in, is going to be a little yeah. <laughs> fast-forwarded here. And, yeah. and you're prepared for this. But it's, I don't know, it really, like, the urgency has, yeah. has, has picked up. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that. Urgency requires it. But it's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Whew. So, Amy, Jesus, it says, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 40 days and 40 nights, I mean, just- I don't recommend that. No. (laughs) I mean, that's about as long as a person can fast before, you know, like you're at risk of dying Dying. at that point. Yeah. 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 I'm curious about- you know, 40, 40 days, 40 nights, 40 is a, is a number that resonates with the Hebrew scriptures. I'm just curious if you make any particular connections. Any connections with 40s. I mean, the two connections that came to my mind, one is in, in one of the flood narratives, the flood is, is 40. Oh, that's right. 40 days. And then the other one is Moses when he goes up the mountain to get the Torah. I think that's also 40 days. I think that's right. It is. And then, you know, the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And 40 days, if you were to drop a Torah scroll, that's how long you'd have to fast. <laughs> is that true? Don't drop a Torah scroll. Oh, my yes, goodness. But I, I think, first of all, all the people who are in the room split up the fast, so they take turns. And I don't think you – it's not 24 hours because it's like a 12 a day day only fast, I think. They don't, you're not supposed to actually die doing these things. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in some ways 40 is just sort of like a, a round number that signifies a lot of time. Yeah. 
but it does have those, you know, particular uh, touch points in the Hebrew Bible story. Yeah. Do you think this is trying to trying to remind us of one of those in particular or sort of just pulling at all of the resonances? I mean, I tend to think that it's pulling at a lot of resonances. I hadn't actually made the connection to the flood story, and so I'm sort of pondering that a little bit. The other mm-hmm. two, to me, both I think are pretty important. Jesus mm-hmm. is going, we're going to see in the next chapter, Jesus is about to deliver a new interpretation of the law. And so that 40 days and 40 nights of Moses mm-hmm. seems like mm-hmm. it's kind of, contrasting, comparing to Jesus, but it's a different kind of 40 days and 40 nights. And that, that 40 wilderness, no food reminds me very much of the 40 years in the wilderness. The Israelites came out of Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness. Jesus has so, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but Jesus has sojourned in Egypt with his parents. He's come through the waters of the Jordan Mm -hmm. and he's now in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he's, there's no food. Like, I think that that is trying to connect us to that story in, in one way or another. Yeah. The difference, of course, there is in the Hebrew Bible story, God starts feeding people in the wilderness with manna. And here, God does not start feeding and Jesus. here, God hands Jesus over to the devil to be tempted. Exactly. <laughs> Why is he fasting? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. Was he fasting already? And then that gave the devil an opportunity to tempt him because he would be hungry. I mean, that's the way that it reads to me. Absolutely. So we don't know why he's fasting. The 40 days and 40 nights is not part of the devil's temptation. It is that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that gave the devil his His entry point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's significant that the devil comes after 40 days of fasting because Jesus is in a very vulnerable position just as a human being who, you know, needs food to live. Like he's at the very outer extremes of what a body can take already. He -hmm. doesn't have a lot of resources, Mm -hmm. you know, available to him. And so like at the, at the outer extreme, now the devil's going to come. That seems important. Mm -hmm. Why Jesus, like did Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights? Because he knew that that would make that happen or because it's symbolically important. And so, you know, like I don't quite know how to make sense of why Jesus started to fast, but the effect of the fast I think is, is really important. Yeah. 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 No, that, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I think that makes sense. So exactly at the end of that 40 days where Jesus is very hungry, the tempter as the devil is called here says, command these stones to become bread since you're God's son. And Jesus responds, People won't live only by bread, but by uh, every word spoken by God. I'm just like, it's so interesting to me that this is the devil, the tempter's first temptation is the temptation toward food. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about how to make sense of that interaction? I mean, the first thing it made me think of was the story of Jacob and Esau, like oh. uh, arguing over, well, not even really arguing. Uh, Jacob's trying to get the, the birthright from his older brother Esau. Yeah. And gets it with giving him some stew. Like <laughs> yeah. Esau comes in from hunting and he's really hungry. And he just so, had a long afternoon. Yeah. And he, he gives just had away. a long afternoon yeah. and he doesn't give it a second thought. He just is hungry. I mean, I know I get like that after a certain point. Like I just go back to this sort of primal needs and I can't even imagine after 40 days and 40 nights. I love that comparison and the, yeah, so Jesus, it's a familiar temptation, a very, very different response from Jesus than, than we had seen in the Hebrew scripture. 
I like that connection. I mean, I think that, I think that connection is, I, I don't think it has like deep resonance. I think it's just a reminder of our, you know, frailty, human frailty. as human yeah. beings. Like, yeah. and that a certain point, if your belly is empty, it will take over. Yeah. Even if you can look back and say that was so dumb, it's yeah. really hard in the moment. Yeah. No, that's so helpful because I knew this guy way back, way back, who was like, oh, yeah, if like Jesus had asked me to do whatever, I would have done it. Like people can get a little cocky about, totally. You know, like, I could survive 40 days in the wilderness without bread and the devil wouldn't right. tempt me. And that connection back to Esau is really helpful because it's like, look, people are like, people are more like Esau where you've had a long afternoon. <laughs> You're going to yeah. give away your, your birthright for a bowl of stew. Then they are like Jesus, who's not going to turn stones into bread when he has the power to do so. Yeah, I think so. This story is also told in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's verse, I don't know if you're going to think anything of this or not. This is out a little bit out of left field. In Luke's story, there is one stone that the the devil says, turn this stone into bread. Mm. Here, it's plural. Turn these stones into bread. I mean, I I don't know which one was original, but Mm -hmm. I like... I like to play with the difference between those two. And Matthew has given us the plural. Any thoughts about what difference it makes if it's singular or plural? The stones, the breads? Okay, this, um, I'm not sure this is a helpful resonance to pull on, but when Moses draws water from the rock, is that one rock or multiple rocks? Or do you think that's just not a good... Well, I think it's I think it's one rock. I have not ma- ever made that connection. I'm so curious where you're going to go with that. Although it happens twice. I don't really. Yeah, right. I don't. I don't really know where I'm going to go with it. Other than, other than you know, one time it it all works out fine, and then the other time Moses sort of does not quite what God asked. Oh yeah. <laughs> and 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 gets in trouble for it. I I don't know where I'm going with it, Bobby. It just yeah. is a resonance that pops into my head. Yeah, no, I like that resonance. I mean, in the wilderness, here's a stone that can be life-giving. Like, there's that absolutely is a resonance. I don't quite know where yeah, to Yeah, right. Here's the least life-giving plane. thing you can imagine. And yeah. you, as far as you can tell, are on your on your last legs. Like, you yeah. need the, life, the life-giving thing. And then thinking about how that how that plays out. But I'm curious if, if something comes to your mind with the difference between stone and stones. Well, here's... Here's what I'm playing with. And I don't, I don't know what I think about this. This is often the case on Bible Worm. I just like toss the things out there and see, see what you think. The turn this stone into bread sounds like you're really hungry. Mm-hmm. So why don't you make a loaf of bread and, and satisfy your hunger? Stones reads to me like excess bread. Mm. And so it's not just like make enough for you to eat, but it's something more than that. And I can kind of go two ways with it. One is like make enough bread so you can f- fulfill your current hunger and also so that you know you've got enough for tomorrow and the day after that. Mm-hmm. And so I like that because it sort of plays with this idea that we'll see more later about, you know, let, let what you need for today be enough and you don't need to pursue excess. Or another way of reading it is that the temptation is not only to provide for himself, but to have extra bread that he could help other people which he's going to do later, yeah. um, feeding the, the 5,000. I don't know that that's in, like, I feel like I'm pushing that text about as far as you can go. But then it's sort of saying, like, what is the temptation here? Well, one temptation is to use power that 
you have access to, but you shouldn't use to take care of your own selfish, not selfish even, your own personal needs. Mm -hmm. Like one of the ways the world's going to tempt you is to make you think you're going to die and then give you the opportunity to not die. Like that's the message if it's one stone. Mm -hmm. If it's multiple stones, I think it's still that. But there's an additional temptation, which is to provide for not only for yourself, but for other people, Mm -hmm. which makes it a little bit more like, charitable or a little more generous. Yeah, a little more confusing. Mm -hmm. Like a little more like, should you do it then? Yeah. You know? If you could turn stones into bread and feed yourself and feed a whole bunch of other people who might be hungry out here in the wilderness. Mm. And to think about that as a temptation is really Mm -hmm. interesting to me. That is really interesting. Yeah. A really selfless temptation. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus responds by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse three, people won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. I'm just, so it's just, I mean, the whole thing is interesting. Like that he quotes scripture, Mm -hmm. that he quotes Deuteronomy, that he quotes Mm -hmm. that verse. Like, what do you make of Jesus's response there? I mean, it's, I think part of what's, what's interesting to me is that sort of inherent in his response is the understanding he does need bread. Like he, and he needs the the words of God. <laughs> yeah. And that what's being offered is not just bread, but he's he's being asked to choose between them. Yes. At this moment. And, yes. and so he doesn't say, I don't need bread. Yes. He says, I need both. And so you're offering to give me bread instead of the words of God. And so that's no, that doesn't leave me any better than. Yes. Well, maybe it leaves me worse, you know, than, than where I am. Yeah, that is some kind of discipline of the body, man. <laughs> yeah. I love what you're saying there, Amy. That's it's not denying the physical needs, but it is saying to be aware of the cost of pursuing yeah. the physical needs, satisfying the physical needs. And this the verse is not people don't live by bread, but by the word. Yeah. It is they don't live only by bread. Right. So it's acknowledging that you need them both. I love I love that reading. And then in doing so, Jesus is drawing on the word of God uh, as given oh, in Deuteronomy yeah. in order to mm-hmm. in order like, no, to know what to thing. do in this situation. Yes, exactly. Because that's the thing about temptations. Like you have to like first slow yourself down enough to think about anything. <laughs> yeah. And then be like, okay, what do I what have I got? Like what are the what are what are the teachings I have or the values I have or the wisdom I have? Like what what can I use in this moment? Yeah, and I love that because that's exactly yeah. what he draws on. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. This month, Bible Worm has a special offer just for you. If you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, now is the time. For the month of January, we're giving all our subscribers access to the full range of Bible Worm features. If you join now at the Bible Worm supporter level, you can get early access to episodes, weekly worship liturgies, and video Bible studies all for just $4 for the month. If you've ever wanted to try out our Patreon, now's the time. We hope you'll join us. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, so the second temptation then starts in verse 5. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written... I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, again it's written, don't test the Lord your God. 
This is a very different kind of test. It's very different. Can you, like, what do you think is the nature of this test? This seems more like maybe inviting him to, like, test God's protection of him, test God's love of him. It's not that, I mean, I guess maybe it's, the devil's actually suggesting that he do, I was going to say maybe it was already scary up on top of the temple, but the devil's suggesting that he should do something even scarier. So it's not that he is already in danger and the devil's offering to make him more comfortable or save him even, like, you know, preserve his body. It's that, you know, okay, that angle didn't work. So how about instead you endanger your own body (laughs) and see if God will save you. And now the devil, it seems like, has sort of learned he likes to quote the words of God. So I'm going to give him some words of God. Like, you like that? Great. Well, your God said this. Yeah. That's pretty clever. That's really clever. I love both. I love love all of that. I want to talk about the scripture bit uh, more in just a second. What you're making me think of with the testing God's love or something, like I'm, I'm trying to relate back to these temptations. So it's not just a weird thing that happened to Jesus, mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. how does this happen to me? Mm-hmm. And there, like that question, like the way you phrased it, like testing God's love or testing God's protection and it, framing that back in terms of the conversation we started with about God says, I love you. <laughs> now <laughs> go to the wilderness and be tempted. And I mean, this is a temptation, I think, I mean, I face it all the time and I can see it in my children to like, no matter how much love you get, you never, it's hard to trust it. it like, yeah. am I, do you really love me? And like, I, I, and so the things that you will do in order to make sure that somebody or some person or some God really loves you, like that seems to me like a, a real human temptation mm-hmm. that, that we all face. Yeah. And yet, I mean, at least in my own experience, when I'm when I'm in relationships where I feel that unsure of someone's love that I want to keep testing it, yeah, no test is gonna make that insecurity go away. That's exactly right. You know, so f- yeah, like you could just do it over and over and over again. Like you have yeah. to find a different yeah way to feel secure in that love. Yeah. That, oh, I love that. Yeah. So if you do throw yourself off this temple and God did save you, right. if you didn't trust it before, you're, you're still not going to trust still, it then. You're still not going to trust it. You're going to have to do it again and again and again because I don't know. At least, I, I mean, that. I've never thrown myself off a building for someone. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, when, when I get into situations and relationships where I feel like one or the other of us is needing a constant redemonstration of yes. our commitment and love. It's bad news bears, man. Yeah, we, that's exactly right. <laughs> we got to change yeah. that, change that cycle. Yeah. Trying to think about like the ways that these temptations come, you know, if, if you're thinking about Satan as like the forces of the world or the power of the empire or whatever, like what this is making me think of is this is the way our whole marketing economy is structured, right? Like to convince you that you yourself are not enough and that you need to test whether you are actually worthy of love and therefore buy this thing or take this service or do this other thing. Like there's a way of reading our culture in which that is constantly being thrown at us to say you are not enough. 
So do this next, do this next thing to prove that you are enough. Right. And then that's not going to be enough either. And that's not going to be enough either. You've got to find the source of love someplace else. Yeah, that's so true. Right. This idea that you have to constantly demonstrate something in order for it to be trustworthy. Or not demonstrate it, but like, I don't know, that you have to test something over and over and over again to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear the love is specifically God's love and the location is specifically the temple. Mm. And so that specificity, I don't honestly exactly know what to do with it. Like it's, you know, this, what we've been saying would work the same if he was throwing himself down from a cliff or from, you know, the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. (laughs) But here it's the highest point on the temple. Anything to, anything to do with that? I mean, what first comes to my mind is just that that understanding that many people would have had at that time, I think, that God's God is, you know, present everywhere, but God is especially present mm. at the temple. Yes. And so it would it's like doing it doing something right in front of your parents' face, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if there's more I don't know if there's more to it than that. The other thing about the temple is like this, this scene reads very isolatedly. Like Jesus is in the wilderness and the devil is there. But like the way this is told, he, the devil brought Jesus into Jerusalem and stood him on the temple. Mm-hmm. That is very public, right? I mean, the, the temple That's is true. a very public place. And so I've been toying around with whether there is like, not just like, do you yourself trust that you are loved, but do you need to demonstrate to other people that God will save you or that you are worthy of God. And so then it's different than just like throwing yourself off a cliff in the wilderness, but in the temple, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show other people that God can catch me or will catch me. Yeah. Which is again, like, yeah, you showed that, you showed that sort of extra, like the twist of the knife in the first one too, that like it's pulling not just on your bodily need, but also maybe your desire to see yourself as a giving and yeah. generous person. And in this case, it's that that twist of the knife is the like tabloid yeah. <laughs> effect of it, you know, yeah. like that that not only will you know who you are in your relationship to God, but everyone else will know that God yeah. delights in you and yeah. that you're here for an important reason and they should pay attention to you. Yes. And, and all of that. Exactly. Now you were pointing out earlier that the devil starts quoting scripture here which I think is such an interesting detail in this text. The quotation is from, at least in the Christian versification, Psalm 91, 11, and 12. And so there's like a battle of scripture going on here. Jesus quotes him back from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So you got the devil quoting the Psalms, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy again. I just, I mean, I, I don't, I just love that battle of scriptural interpretation here. I think there's so much one can do with it. Like what, what do you make of that detail in this text? I mean, the, the fact that they're, that they go back and forth. Yeah. Or just that the devil's quoting scripture now and that there's a back and forth and all the things. I really, um, I actually honestly hadn't realized this until we were in conversation about it, but it really, uh, I don't know, it really, it shows this understanding of the devil at really speaking to you in the language that will resonate yes. for you, Yeah, which is terrifying. Yeah. Although, again, if you go back to it being some kind of uh, 
negative voices in your own mind, of course that's how that works. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> how to speak yeah. to you. Yeah. You said the response is, Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy? It is. Yeah, is Deuteronomy right? 6.16. It's interesting. Now, he, Jesus likes a lot of Deuteronomy. Every passage he's quoting in this, in this uh, passage is from Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah it's interesting, is, but that's where Jesus goes. Yeah, which is, which is very interesting. Yeah, I would have, you know, I would have, if you had just asked me off the top, I don't know what bias this shows in me, but like, who's going to quote Deuteronomy and who's going to quote a Psalm? Yeah. I would have said, oh, Jesus is going to quote the Psalms. Yeah. And, you know, the Psalm that like, you know, Psalm 91 is like the Psalm of the the faithful and the care that God shows to people who are faithful. I would have said, yeah. oh, yeah, that one is Jesus's, but no, it's, yeah. it's inverted here. I mean, I guess it is a, a reminder, as we know very well from our world, that scripture can be used in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Because earlier you were saying Jesus knows where to look for to, to find out what he should do in this situation or mm, something like that. And yeah. when we were talking about the first temptation. Mm-hmm. And so the devil now has complicated that, right? Because That's now right. you're saying like you can turn to exactly to the right place, but that too can be manipulated. And so, yeah, I mean, I re- when I read this, I mm. think about those bumper stickers that you used to see around that said something like the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. And I'm like, nope. Like it doesn't settle very much. It doesn't. Because <laughs> here, like here, the devil can use it exactly, direct quote of scripture to justify a point that is exactly the wrong thing for mm. Jesus to be doing. And so what matters is the interpretation of scripture. And I mean, I struggle like I, I, with my students especially, and when I teach and when I teach in churches too, this idea that there is an act of interpretation that that is necessary. One cannot simply read the scripture and be like, that's it. We have to enter into the process of interpreting scripture. And there are good ways of interpreting it, faithful ways of interpreting it, and there are ways that lead us down the wrong path, the path of, of the devil. And so scripture's not enough. It's discernment about yeah. scriptural interpretation. And that stresses people out because it feels much less concrete. Yeah. We got to trust ourselves. We got to trust our pastors or our biblical scholars or whoever. But I think that's right. Like, I mean, I think this, I think this passage exemplifies yeah. something that is fundamentally true. The yes. Bible can be, has been misused in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. Yes. Yeah. So the final test begins in verse eight. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him and the angels came and took care of him. So this last temptation is about having political power in the world, I guess, um, in exchange for bowing down to Satan. Like in some ways, this is the least relatable to me, but also like the most, yeah. like, yep, I see how that goes. But what's what seems important to you about this? You know, I was just thinking a similar thing. Like it's, in some ways, what stands out to me is this this sort of ending point. This seems like the easiest one. Mm. But, you know, I mean, like, when when the devil says, bow down and worship me, like, that's a really good cue that <laughs> you yeah. should not. Don't do that one. You yeah. don't, don't do that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when we started with the first one, there was nothing like that. It was just yeah. like, 
command the stones to become loaves of bread. That was, you know, and so I do, I don't know. I want to dig in with you about like, why would this be the last one? If Jesus passed the first one and Jesus passed the second one, how could the devil possibly have thought that this third one was going to work? Yeah. It's interesting too, that the movement is something like the bread is like your personal physical needs. Mm -hmm. Then that temple one is like your need for love and for Mm -hmm. others to know Mm -hmm. that you are loved. Yes. So we've moved slightly more public. And now this one is like power over the nations. Yes. So we've gone from very personal to global uh, and to power. And so I, yeah. in some ways, like, I think some people, this is a very big temptation. And for some people, maybe that it's not. But if you were the son of God, I imagine, <laughs> you know, like you could have power over the world and like, here, I'll just give it to you. Like you could do it. I wonder if the devil is speaking to certain, certain kinds of folk who have a desire for large scale political power. And we know those people exist. Yeah. Reading it that way troubles me a little bit because I don't see myself in that. And then it becomes easy for me to say, well, like this one isn't relevant to me. Okay. I just had a, I had a thought that made it uh, maybe a little less obvious to me that this, that this was a, not a very tempting temptation. That if Jesus is coming to inaugurate some sort of new, new way of being in the world, Taken having control now over all the places. Yeah. Seems like that would do it. That's true. I mean, if we imagine that Jesus is the kind of leader that the Hebrew Bible has imagined, you know, if they're imagining an earth earthly, not divine Mashiach, like anointed one, Messiah, which is what the Hebrew Bible has been imagining, this seems like an offer. Like, yeah. great, be be king over all the places. I'll give yeah. you all the places, and then you can do what you want, except that that is fundamentally incompatible, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, with the idea that then you then you would need to bow down and you know yeah. worship Satan. That's a problem. So you have so then you would have confused the political end with the like religious or spiritual purpose. You have to trade the one off in order to achieve the other. Yeah. Yeah. Even if your goal is to really bring peace, you're going to be the best king ever and you're going to bring peace to all these places that is fundamentally inextricable from from the God part, (laughs) the way that Jesus is going to do it. One of the questions that occurs to me is uh, how much Jesus knows at this point point in his life about the way he's actually going to mm. come to have influence in the world, which involves like giving himself over to the power of violence and death. Here's an option to have the mm-hmm. same power, mm-hmm. but not have to go through all that. Yeah. And it's a I'm, power that's yeah. more recognizable. Where you've made me go, and I don't, I don't know, but I think, I think this is actually is a temptation that I face, and I face it exactly as a Christian. And I think it is often a a temptation that the church faces, which is to say, we believe we ought to spread the good news of the gospel to the world. So one way of doing that is by exercising political power over the world and forcing people to accept the gospel. That has been our long, long history. 
And that's the temptation. And if you take this political power, but what is the cost? Yeah. And here it's suggesting that power over, that's the work of the devil. And so if if the way you spread the gospel is power over others, then you've you've given away the very core of the gospel that you're trying to spread. Yeah, right. The gospel you're, you're, is about loving, like spreading through the love, the self-giving love that lifts up the other uh, right. rather than taking power over them. That's the way God wants the gospel to spread. That's the kingdom of heaven. Right, right. It's not so much just the the end point. Like yeah. it's not so much just the end point. You have to get, you can only get there on this certain path. Yeah. Like my own denomination, we talk. We we were politically significant about I don't know sixty years ago, mm-hmm. and we 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 miss those days <laughs> when you know presidents yeah. were calling us into their Oval Office to say like what should I do in this situation, and you know, but I wonder sometimes like maybe maybe it's better when we don't have access in the same way to the hall to the halls of power, but it, but I sure do we sure do miss it. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, it is a it is a confusing thing to have that kind of power. The other thing that I think is in here, if you just dig a little bit, is that the way one gains power over the world is by worshiping Satan. And so now we're talking about Rome. How did Rome get its power? Well, it worships Satan. It, it has given in to all these temptations. And then we can extrapolate that to other other kingdoms, other empires, other republics. and to say like the political power that is fundamentally demonic. That might've been a little strong, but like that's what this text I think is saying. Mm -hmm. And true gospel power, true God power is in, is in lifting up others and forming a community in the model of Deuteronomy, which Jesus keeps quoting in which the most vulnerable people are, are taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of so many times in my own community too, that like we, we are trying to think how we can get ourselves in front of powerful people to have a good yeah. impact on the world. You know, yeah. I totally, I hundred percent get that. And then once you have that seat at the table, you are, it is front of mind all the time not to lose that seat at the table. That's it. You know, the getting into a position where you can speak the truth to power, like that seems like can be a noble end. That can be a noble end, but it entraps you. Exactly. It's the clinging to that position. Now yes. that I've got it, I got to figure out how to stay there. That's where it all goes. Yeah. South, yeah. Okay, this passage then ends up with a shift. To, oh, he's been taken care of by the angels, which I think is kind of, I mean, it just connects back to the the love thing we started with. The God loves you. You got to go to the wilderness but the angels are going to tend you at the end. Like somehow that softens that just a little bit for me. I don't, did you make anything out of the angels at the end here? You know, I didn't really think about it, but but yeah, I think I like I think I like where you're going with that, and and just this sense that you know he, he was his cup was sort of filled with all this love and delight at the end of chapter three, and then it was like drained pretty significantly. Yeah. <laughs> Over the course of the first part of this chapter. And there's, yeah, seems like there's some recognition that your cup has been drained and you need some divine care. Yeah. Which one can also then take a little, a little step further to say that even when you and your own life are going through 
difficult things, through 40 days of starvation, through temptations by the devil. That does not mean that God's love isn't present there with mm-hmm. you. Like God's love brackets this story. It's there at the beginning and it's there at the end. Yeah. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that because you are being loved by God, you don't, you don't ever go through the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this passage takes a shift right at the end into a, what is a different scene, but I think it's interesting to connect them. Beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John was arrested, he went to Galilee. He left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, which lies alongside the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali alongside the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who lived in the dark have seen a great light and a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in the shadow of death. From that time, Jesus began to announce, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that like pretty much what John was saying? That is exactly word for word what John was saying at the beginning of chapter three. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you want to say anything about that? I mean, it's funny. Before I actually heard you say the words aloud, I mostly was sort of stuck on the like from that time. Yeah. Like what has, what has changed? Yes. You know? And not now it's sort of like, not just, yeah, like what has, what has changed? Something has changed. And he is stepping into this role, you know, that John sort of said he was going to in some ways, you know, there's someone coming after him. He knows that John can't do it because he's been arrested. And so that has, things have sort of shifted politically and maybe things have shifted uh, spiritually is the right word for Jesus. Like Jesus has grown more into this uh, role right? and the world has shifted in a way that has said, it's time for you to take yes. this on. But yeah, I, I love that he's saying exactly the same thing that John yeah. said. Yeah. I love it. I love that. I think that's really important. He's continuing something that started before him. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying about the political situation has changed. One could imagine that when John is arrested, you think, oh, that that didn't work out, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then John's message dies, but instead Jesus picks it up and carries it. And so that is suggestive of what the church is to do when Jesus himself is crucified and then what political changes in our own time. The other element that connects to me for that is, like, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't proclaim the gospel until here. And the thing that has happened to him is he has been baptized and he's Mm -hmm. been tempted Mm -hmm. and now he can say it. And he's moved to Galilee, which I don't want to lose track of that one because that's important too, I think. But I keep coming back to that fulfilling all righteousness that we talked about last time and that what Jesus did, if if we read that text correctly, is he gave himself over to a loyalty to the kingdom of heaven, which was in contrast to the kingdom of Rome. He said, I'm exiting this one framework for living and I'm entering God's framework and that's where I'm going to stay. And then the temptations were all about, nope, come back to the Rome's way of framing things. And Jesus didn't do it, even though it almost cost him his life. And now he can proclaim the gospel. So I think there's something there about he gave his life to it and he showed that it is in fact possible to withstand the temptation to return to the way of life of the kingdom of Rome. And once he has demonstrated that, I don't know to us, to himself, to God, to, mm-hmm. I don't know who he's demonstrating it to exactly, maybe all of those, but now he can truly and, and, and genuinely proclaim the gospel. And 
and you know when you hear him say it that it's that it's possible. Yeah. I love that. Can I ask you a translational question? Yeah, absolutely. In verse 12, I'm reading from the NRSV, and it says at the end, he withdrew to Galilee. Yeah. And I first read that as almost like he he sort of went into hiding because he heard that John had been arrested. But I feel like part of what we're talking about now is sort of precisely that he didn't. Can how do you understand that? Or is that just not how you understand the withdrew? No, I think that's I think that's really important. The verb there is withdrew, which the CEB kind of softens a little bit and just yeah. went. Jesus withdraws in Matthew's gospel from time to time. He withdraws onto mountains to pray and things like that. I think one could certainly read it as Jesus was anxious about John having been arrested, and so he retreated to somewhere safer. Yeah. Another way of reading it, this is the way I like, I mean, you'll be able to tell, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is that um, this is suggesting that it is not, in fact, possible to live in the kingdom of God in the center of power. In this case, that's Jerusalem, but it could be any center of power. And so in order for Jesus to live out, to to show people how to live out this kingdom of heaven, he's had to withdraw from the center of power to a less public, a less powerful, a less cosmopolitan place Yeah. so that he can actually live that way, live the way that kingdom of heaven calls us to live, calls one to live, which I, you know, I'm always, whenever I say that, I'm just referencing back Deuteronomy. Like I really do think that that is what, what is in mind. And he knew he couldn't do it in Jerusalem. He saw what happened to John. So he went to Galilee and, and lived it out there. And then he comes, he's going to come back to Jerusalem at the end of his life. And he's going to be killed exactly trying to live out the kingdom of heaven in the center of power. That's kind of what I do with it. I, I love that. And I love, I don't know, maybe this, I don't know if you'll love, I'm sure that this is heretical in every tradition, but, <laughs> but I wonder what you'll, sometimes you like heretical things. I, I love heretical it. things. Like, it's almost like even Jesus who had this, you know, amazing, who is, who is the son of God and had this amazing baptismal experience and endured these three incredibly intense temptations to live the sweetest life of the empire that you can, you know, all the, all the trappings, even he decides that the best that, that live, that going back and living in the center of where the empire's work goes down is incompatible with, with what he's trying to do. Right. Like, and I don't know if that's incompatible in a way that would have been like, it will be too much. It'll be too taxing to try to confront that day in and day out. It'll be too distracting. It'll you know take too much energy away from the work that he's really trying to do. Or if it, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know sort of how far to push it, but it seems like, like if even Jesus needs to, in order to maintain this focus that he has already demonstrated, needs to not be in the center yeah. of town. That's really, for me, like a statement of how strong a sort of gravitational pull the empire has. No, I, I didn't hear a single heresy in there, Amy. I love, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you were reminding me just of a, you know, like 
I think you and I both have some liberationist strands in us. And one of the things that liberation theology teaches is that God often is revealed more fully among people who are far from the center of power Mm. than from people who are in the center of power. And I think that that, you know, I mean, two ways of thinking about it, which I think are not incompatible at all. One is people who are invested in the power, oftentimes, I mean, the way this story is going to turn out, spoiler alert, is they're going to kill the one who tries to show an alternative way of life. They're so invested in their own access to power that they just literally cannot hear an alternative. People who are already divested of power, not of their own choosing necessarily, but just because of who they are or where they live or the way they've been designated by people who do have power, they're not invested in the power structures in the same way because the power structures have not been welcoming to them or available to them. And so there is a possibility for the gospel to take root differently. And I think both of those are at play in this text than they're at play in in this world. So Jerusalem people are too invested in Jerusalem. Galilee people don't don't have that power. And so when you go to Galilee, they're they're open to something else. They're open to something new. They want to see something different. Mm. To me, that connects back to this quote from Isaiah, especially the end of it, the people who lived in the dark have seen a great light. I think what Matthew's doing with that is to say the darkness has been the inability to see the way the world really works or the embrace the possibility of what God really has because the power of the empire has been so strong. Mm-hmm. But now Jesus is going to come and show you the alternative that was already laid out there in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the in yes. the Hebrew Bible. What what would that actually look like? I'm going to show right. it to you. Right. And now Here's, their eyes are opened. Yes. Here is someone who can actually embody that. Yeah. You can see what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. All right, Amy. I I always feel like there's more and more and more that one could mm, say about every text that we read. Uh, when you're thinking about this text and what we've talked about today and how this connects to our own moment and our own communities, what are you drawing out as most important? I'm going to tell you what is at the front of my mind and warn you that it, that it, I think is a little bit remedial level probably for, um, Christian readers, but you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time with this text. So, um, I think every time we come back to the New Testament again, I, for whatever dumb reason, I start with this idea that like Jesus is just another category of being that is so far from a human that like, I can't imagine anything being difficult for Jesus or like any real vulnerability. And then the man walks on water. He flies around like an airplane. No, he doesn't really do that. But like- (laughs) At the very end, he does (laughs) on a cloud. Yeah, Yeah, great. And I just am feeling so struck by the idea in here that, yes, Jesus got through these temptations. We did not get uh, to spend time in Jesus's psyche about how it felt or- how, you know, like, was it hard? Did your stomach hurt? You know, whatever. Like, we, we don't yeah. get any of that. And so, again, it's very easy for me to read it and be like, well, of course Jesus did fine on this test because Jesus is Jesus and tests are not hard for Jesus and the devil's stupid, right? <laughs> yeah. But then you, when you get to this last part that we just read, first, the fact that he withdraws to Galilee. Mm-hmm. 
maybe, you know, as we were just saying with this sort of like, I've got to get my legs under me and not be constantly encountering these other forces. Yeah. And then also that that part at the end, like from that time, like something has changed. Yes. This was an exp- I think like those are these like tiny windows into the idea that like Jesus is is human in this story and yeah. and to try to in, try to engage with the story that way and imagine these vulnerabilities and how they're navigated and how they change you for the better and yeah. when you need your cup refilled and that I don't know it just is I just need these constant reminders that like this is not a story about like Superman or some like totally unrelatable (laughs) um, character, even if we have to look for the subtle hints to read that in. And it's, um, it's really, it's really moving for me to, to read it that way. Yeah. I love that, Amy. You know, you're struggling with the nature of Christ, basically, which (laughs) the (laughs) Council of Chalcedon settled as Jesus was fully human and fully divine without confusion, division, or separation, which is as confusing as anything else. But Mm -hmm. I do think there is a temptation to read Jesus as fully divine, like the Superman version. And this text and and the official doctrines of Christian thought say, no, Jesus was human in all things. Jesus was also divine in all things, and you can't pull those apart. But I think this text is a really good demonstration of that and this idea that Jesus in his humanity went through the things that we also go through in our humanity and in demonstrated what is in fact possible if one is truly given over to the divine way of life, to the kingdom of heaven. And so he was hungry, he was tempted, he was tired, he knew he had to withdraw for whatever reason, he turned to the scripture in order to know what was the right thing to do next. He recognized that scripture can be misused and that it had to be interpreted in light of what he already knew to be true about God. I mean, there's just so much there and so so instructive, I think, for us. And the way that you're reading that, I think, is, is so useful, obviously, for Christians in, in particular. I think my thought about it is just one further take on that, which is, it seems to me that Jesus was not able to proclaim the gospel in any legitimate way until he had been through what he went through in this text. Yeah. Until he had been baptized in the last text and said, I give my life over to the way of the kingdom of heaven and not to the way of the kingdom of Rome. And then uh, the devil or Rome or structural uh sin had come at him with everything it had. And Jesus said, no, it's actually possible to not give in to that and to not be overwhelmed by our physical needs or our need to be loved and to demonstrate to other people that we're loved or our need to be in positions of power. It's actually possible to say no to those things, to withdraw to another place and to live out a different kind of life. You could do it. Jesus did it. You could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think for us as Christians who proclaim the gospel, I think one of the things that this text says to me is there are some prerequisites for being somebody who should be out there proclaiming the gospel. And it's not just their prerequisites for 
us, but in fact, there were prerequisites for Jesus. And that was to do some self-examination about where our loyalties lie and to whom we have given ourselves and to what degree we're able to withstand the temptations that face us in the same way that they face Jesus. And only when we've gotten our heads on straight about who we're loyal to to, and giving ourselves to the self-giving love of the kingdom of heaven and not to the power over of the kingdom of Rome and kingdom of today, then we can proclaim the gospel. Change your hearts and lives. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near. Mm. Come look at us. You can see it. It's right here, you know? Yeah. That's what the church should be. That's what the community of faith should be. Oftentimes, we're not that. I think maybe even rarely we are that. But this text kind of gives you a hope that, that maybe you could be. Maybe, maybe there could be a glimmer. But you got to do the work. Yeah. I love that. I think that's where we ended last week, too. <laughs> that probably is very good. You gotta do the work. Yeah. Gotta do the work. Yeah. The reason we end the same place frequently is because it's a really important place to end. <laughs> <laughs> all, yes, all these texts hang together nicely. Mm. So next week we'll probably end up in a similar place, but from a different text. We'll be at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. All righty. Well, I will see you then. All right, Amy. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next week when we'll read the Beatitudes as told in Matthew 5, 1-20. Until then, keep on digging.